You know why we need to sing songs like that over and over and over again? Because we forget, right? We forget who we are. One of the reasons we forget who we are, who we really are as believers, as a church, is because we, as human beings, are inescapably tribal. We are tribal people. It's not, just, it's not an American thing. It's not like an Oregon thing. It's like a human thing. We are tribal. Here's how deep those tribal instincts go. Researchers recently created, ran an experiment, they created two arbitrary groups, the blue shirt team and the green shirt team. And then they showed pictures of team members' faces to each other, expressing one of three emotions, happiness, sadness, or anger. So you're seeing pictures of your teammates and pictures of the other teammates looking one of those three ways. And then they asked each of the team members to evaluate the emotion that was being expressed on the the, the face that they saw. People rated the facial expression of their teammates more positively than the faces of the opposing team, which they consistently rated more negatively regardless of the emotion being expressed. Our tribalism actually affects the way we see each other. Our judgment of like, what's going on in your face? I mean, it's kind of crazy. Actually, they discovered that just being in a group makes us more competitive and less generous toward outsiders no matter how arbitrary or recent that group membership is. So for example, they've discovered that you, yes, you, people like you are willing to cause other people more discomfort when the other person is in a different group. And how's that different group defined? You're, that, that other group is th- th- those people over there in a different room across the hallway. Like that's all it takes. We are, as human beings, tribal. If we don't have one, we'll make one. And as soon as we're in one, it's us versus them. Now, I I explain all that to simply raise this question. If this is what we're like, is there any hope for the church? Are are we just one tribe among many? And what happens when different tribal allegiances begin to conflict inside the church? We're in our second week of the series I've titled United We Stand, our, our study of Paul's letter his first letter to the church in Corinth. And in our passage this morning, we're just barely into the letter, Paul wastes no time raising the main issue. How can we be united as believers when literally everything in us just wants to divide? So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in verse 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, those black Bibles, uh, this is found on page 1011, 1011. If you're not used to a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. So chapter 1, the small numbers are verse numbers. Uh, we're going to start with verse 10. I'm going to read uh, verses 10 to 17. It's a short passage this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. <clears throat> Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Okay, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. All right, so last week we looked at the opening of this letter and and we saw that Paul was basically trying to win a hearing from them, pointing out all the ways he's thankful for the Corinthians. And now he gets to the point for them and for us. We're going to put it on the screen. Here's the point. Be a uniter, not a divider. There it is. Now, no, no, I'm not saying be united, not divided. That's passive. It's you. Be a uniter, not a divider. Now, I know that sounds cliched, maybe even hackneyed. It's the kind of thing that you would expect at, at, I don't know, a a high school, like, class president election slogan or something. But what I want to try to convince you of this morning is that Paul has a particular kind of unity in mind. And he offers two reasons to pursue that particular unity that I'm going to describe here in a moment. So as we consider this this morning, I want you to consider this, this very simple phrase, right? Be a uniter, not a divider. How can you, you personally, be a uniter rather than a divider here at Henson? All right, so let's just start with that phrase, be a uniter, not a divider. Look again there at verse 10, because this is where this comes from. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same convictions. So for the 10th time in as many verses, Paul speaks in the name of Jesus Christ. And for the seventh time, he calls him Lord. So this this isn't just like Paul's sentiment here. He is speaking with the authority of Jesus. And with that authority, he urges them to agree in what you say. Literally, say the same things. But now here's the thing. What Paul has in view here is not monotonous uniformity or constrictive conformity. His goal is not groupthink, and it's certainly not thought control. You see, Paul is not 
so much talking about unanimity the way we think of unanimity. He's talking about integrity and specifically bodily integrity. He doesn't want them to be divided. You see that there in verse 10? There should be no divisions among you. That word that's translated in our Bible's division, it's the word that we get schism from. Now, schism, if you're a historian, you think about this uh, church history, like the church has been divided, uh, schismatics, the, the great schism in 500, and uh, you got another one in 1,000, and you got at least Rome would say that, that we as Protestants are schismatics uh, in about 1,500, about every 500 years, there seems to be some sort of division like this. So we think of it in terms of abstract thoughts about theology, etc. That is not what Paul is talking about here. That's not why he's using this word. This word schism or division, it's a violent word. It, it's taken from, from the slaughterhouse or, or the butcher's shop, or, or maybe even from what they've observed out there in the wild, because it describes the tearing or rending of flesh, as if the body of Christ is being torn limb from limb. That's the image that he's using here. You know, Adrian and I got to see this up close while we were on safari in South Africa this summer. As, as we watched a pride of lions rip into the dead carcass of a hippo. If you come back tonight for uh, the members meeting, there might be a picture of it. I got to tell you, there was nothing dry or abstract about the rending and tearing that was going on here. As these animals with their incredibly powerful jaws like clamped on to the flesh of this dead hippo and then put all of their considerable strength into ripping flesh from bone. This is what Paul's talking about. Paul wants agreement about themselves in their words, not a tearing themselves apart through their words. And he drives this point home with another image. In one sense, he's saying the same thing three times, agree in what you say, no divisions among you, united with the same understanding and the same convictions. But with that, that last phrase, he, he's really pushing the point a, a little bit further. He, he says they're, they're to be united in their understanding and conviction. Now, those two words, understanding and conviction, we, we might translate it as uh, united in your mindset, and, and in your purpose. He, he's not saying that they need to be united in every last opinion. I don't think he cares if they all agree on who's the best plumber in Corinth, right? He's not talking about plumbing. He's not talking about politics. He's talking about them and how they think and talk about themselves. Taken with that earlier phrase of kind of saying the same things, we might say that what Paul is really asking for here is that, hey, guys, you need to be on the same page. You, you need to all be singing from the same hymn book. You need to be working from the same playbook. And the way you get there in this third clause that he that has there in verse 10 about be united with the same understanding and the same conviction, the way you get there is by being united. Well, now that sounds kind of circular, doesn't it? 
be united by being united. Well, once again, Paul is actually using very vivid imagery that doesn't quite come through in the English for us. To be united with is literally to function well together. And it's closely related to a medical term that describes setting a broken bone so that the two parts of the bone knit back together and function again. And as a result of that use of the word, it then by extension began to be used of people like like physical therapists or trainers who would work with an athlete, helping that athlete make their body like work well together, make all the different parts of the body function well together so that they could, you know, win at, at whatever event that they were competing in. A few years back, I, I had shoulder surgery. Some of you all will remember with my arm, you know, stuck in that sling for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And, um, and the reason is because I tore my shoulder. And so they had, I had the surgery, they fixed it, and, and it was all fixed. Only after everything had healed, my shoulder didn't work anymore. Now, that's kind of weird. I thought they were supposed to fix it. Well, what happens when they fix it? It's got to sit still. You can't move it for like six or eight weeks. And after six or eight weeks of not moving it, it doesn't want to move anymore. The, the parts of the shoulder, and there are a bunch of them, are no longer cooperating with each other. So I had to spend actually months and months and months with a physical therapist who basically and painfully worked with me very slowly so that the different parts of my shoulder began to cooperate with one another again and, and restore my shoulder to full functionality. The goal of the physical therapist was not to get every part of my shoulder doing the same thing. The goal of the physical therapist was so that this part would do its thing correctly and this other part over here would do its thing correctly and would let the other thing do its thing correctly so that the whole would work. That's what Paul is urging here. Not rote conformity, not oppressive unanimity, but a mindset that leads to protecting bodily integrity and promoting bodily functionality. He wants us, in other words, to pursue unity, to be united by being bone setters, not butchers. Right, people who come along and get the bones together so that they knit together and work again, not the guy that comes along with a cleaver and chops them in two. He wants us to be uniters, not dividers, by basically being physical therapists with each other, helping each other work well together. So Christian, and particularly the members of Henson Baptist Church, how are you using your words? How are you using your words as you talk to different people in this church? How are you using your words on social media? How are you using your words? Are you using them the way a butcher uses a cleaver? To separate shoulder from joint, bone from bone, or are you using them like a trainer or a physical therapist, seeking to help the other parts of the body around you work well together? 
if I could change the image a little bit, maybe to focus more on words, or is, is your use of words more like the way a choir director approaches a choir, trying to help everybody sing well together in harmony? Or is your use of words more like, you know, a diva soloist who's just going off on their own, singing their own tune? Pursuing this kind of unity with our words, being kind of physical therapists with each other, is more about how we talk with one another than it is what we talk about. We should be able to talk about things that we disagree with one another about. But we ought not be pursuing those conversations in such a way that it leaves us fractured and further divided. But rather in such a way that maybe I don't change your mind, but I walk away understanding you better and respecting you more. And you walk away understanding me better and respecting me more as a result of the way we use our words. Those of us here in the church who are serving as elders, and really any, any of you who aspire to leadership in the church, I think this image of being a physical therapist is a useful one for us in particular. This is what we should be about as elders. This is what any of us who are leaders should be about. Helping fellow members agree, not in uniformity of opinion, but in mindset, in, in attitude, so that the church functions as it ought to function. Well, what, what would that look like? Well, that would mean taking things that our tribalism wants to make big and helping people say, you know, that, that's actually a small thing. It, it, it would mean being very clear in our perspective what things should be big, what things actually are worth dividing over, and what things aren't, what things are just worth a good, friendly discussion. But then we walk away still committed to one another in the body of Christ. Elders, I think this is, this is a lot of our job, uh, particularly these days when the air we breathe is partisan and divided. Now, church, this can be painful. I mean, my experience with my physical therapist was maybe one of the most painful things I've ever been through. I don't hold it against her. She meant well, but it was awful. <laughs> well, you know, it can feel pretty awful when you're confronted with the evidence that maybe your, your attitudes or your words are being divisive. It can be painful when somebody confronts you and, and challenges you maybe on, on your mindset. It is, is what you're doing or saying, what you're posting out there on social media, is that actually, is, is, is that helping the body function better together? Or, or is, it, is it tearing us apart? Nobody likes to be confronted with that. But if the elders are being good physical therapists, that's going to happen. Now, there are all sorts of things that we're going to disagree about. Sports, politics, social issues, 
educational philosophy, child-raising theories, and the list is long. This just goes on and on and on and on. And I want to be really clear here. It is, it is good to have com- convictions and opinions on such things, even when you're wrong, <laughs> you know? Like maybe your attitude toward Ducks football. You, you should have an opinion, right or wrong. Yeah, I know, I gotta be careful here. Um, right or wrong, you, it's totally fine to have an opinion. Have a conviction even. But none of those things should be pursued in such a way that it rends our functional unity as a local church, the body of Christ. That's true of sports. That's true of politics. It's true of public health policy. It's true of most of the things that our culture wants us to divide over. Functional unity, bodily integrity is Paul's goal. It's the reason he wrote this entire letter. As the letter unfolds, he's going to address one issue after another that threatens and challenges that unity. But right here in our, in our passage today, what, what he does first is he offers two reasons why we should pursue this unity. Before he takes up all the different things, he, he's going to give us two reasons for pursuing this unity. And, and they're this, we, we should pursue this unity because Christ is not divided and because ministry is about Christ, not the minister. We should pursue unity because Christ isn't divided and because ministry, the ministry of the church, is about Christ, not the minister. So let's look at those two reasons. Second, be a uniter, not a divider, because Christ is not divided. Look at verse 11. For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. Or, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? Here's where we learn the occasion of the letter, the reason he writes the letter in the first place. We have no idea who Chloe is. But some people from Chloe, and we don't know who they are either, have shown up where Paul is, he's in Ephesus, with a report, possibly a letter. Now, it might be, I mean, it's clear the Corinthians know who Chloe is, and it's clear that the Corinthians know who Chloe's people are. We, we don't. Maybe it's the people that show up at the end of 1 Corinthians, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they're actually present, and they've, they've come from Corinth. Maybe those are, that's Chloe's people. Whatever, we don't know. What we do know is they brought a report. And that report is that the church in Corinth is filled with rivalries centered on their favorite preachers. There's the party of Paul, there's the party of Apollos, there's the party of Peter, and somewhat confusingly, there's the party of Christ. No one's quite sure what Paul's referring to there. It could be that what Paul is saying is, you guys are saying you're in my party, but I'm not even in my party. I'm in the party of Christ. Or it could be that what Paul is, uh, has been told is that there are some people who are so super spiritual 
that they've managed to turn Christ and allegiance to him in an, into an exclusive club inside the church and not everybody gets to be a part. Crazy. E- either way, the point remains. The church is dividing over their allegiance to men. And Paul is beside himself. He, he asks these, these three questions, which are kind of dripping with, with, with irony and, and scorn, and all of them, the, the answer is no, right? Is Christ divided? No! There are not two Christs, there are not three Christs. We don't all get to have our own Christ. No, there, there's one Christ, and therefore there's only one body of Christ. Was Paul crucified for you? No! No, only Christ was crucified for his people. There's only one salvation, and it is by Christ, and it is through Christ. And then finally, yes, were you baptized into Paul's name? No, of course you want. Your, your identity is not in Paul. Your allegiance is not to Paul. It's to Christ. So here's, here's the first reason that, that kind of the factionalism among any local church is just ridiculous. The very nature of our Savior, the very nature of our salvation undermines any sort of factional division or party spirit, but especially if it's around our favorite preachers or ministries. Your favorite preacher didn't save you. You know that, right? Your favorite ministry has no claim on your life or your loyalty. Christ alone is Savior. Christ alone is King. Christ alone bought us out of slavery to sin at the cost of his own blood. And so Christ alone commands our allegiance and defines our identity. Now, where here at Henson are we tempted to divide into factions that are purely human? Well, obviously, it happens over things that have nothing to do with the gospel, politics or public health policy or church-state relations. I got to tell you, over the last two years, the one that's been most difficult for me, that's been personally the most painful is when members of our church have compared the position that we've taken on a particular matter or the non-position that we've taken on a secondary matter, and they've compared it to what John MacArthur says, or John Piper says, or Doug Wilson says, and then becomes divisive or critical about that because we're not lining up with this other preacher who lives in another state. I think that's what's been hardest for me. It's made me feel like, oh my goodness, I am living inside of 1 Corinthians. And nobody wants to live inside of 1 Corinthians. How do you know that you're in danger of becoming wrongly partisan, factional, and divisive? I'll give you a really simple test. When your fellowship, when your when your sense of closeness, affection, and unity, 
with another brother or sister in this church who believes all the same things that you do about Jesus and the gospel, when that fellowship is strained because they don't believe the same thing that you do about something that actually has nothing to do with salvation and cannot save you. When you feel that kind of strain, you know something's wrong. It's been fascinating as I've kind of read on this topic of just partisanship and division and the the way it's affected kind of the air we breathe, the world that we live in, not just as a church thing, but society-wide. It used to be surveys that were done 40, you know, 50 years ago. Um, A majority of Americans were deeply troubled and even opposed to the idea that, that their child might grow up and marry someone of a different ethnicity. Same poll, these days, no one cares. No one cares if their child grows up and marries somebody of a different ethnicity. But you know what they care about now? If their child grows up and marries somebody of a different political party. They feel that as strongly as Americans used to feel about ethnicity. Brothers and sisters, this is the air we breathe. It's the world we live in. Maybe you say to me, but pastor, you don't understand. People in that other political party, they're immoral people. I don't want my child growing up to marry an immoral person. And and you understand that people in both parties feel this way about each other. Republicans think Democrats are immoral. Democrats think Republicans are immoral. Everybody thinks everybody else is immoral. And I don't want my kid growing up marrying into that kind of immorality. Man, sure is a shame Jesus doesn't save immoral people. Brothers and sisters, it's our fellowship in Christ and his salvation, the salvation that he gives that matters. And it matters not just for us and our unity, it matters for non-Christians who are watching us. Because when they see us divide over things that aren't Jesus and the gospel, they begin to be confused about what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, what is this salvation that they're talking about? So let me just be really clear. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand. Not what we think about Trump or Biden. Not what we think about John MacArthur or John Piper. What we really want you to understand is what we think about Jesus. And on that, we all agree. We are baptized into his name. What does that mean? It means we've identified with him publicly. We identify with Jesus. Why? Because he first identified with us. He took on our flesh. He lived our life, the life we should have lived but didn't. And then he took that life and he sacrificed it on the cross. He was crucified for us, taking the punishment that we deserve but cannot bear. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus was crucified in your place to pay your penalty for your rebellion, not his. And then he got up from the dead proving that God accepted his sacrifice so that anyone who repents and believes, any Democrat, any Republican, any 
Beavers fan, any Ducks fan, like anyone who repents and believes in Christ can be forgiven, can be adopted into his family, can receive his eternal life. You understand that he took on our flesh so that we could take on his life. And so we are baptized into his name, a name that unites all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. I would love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to identify with Jesus and to know all the benefits of Jesus identifying with you. You can talk to me afterwards. Or if you don't want to talk to me because I'm the preacher and I'm scary, talk to the person that you came with that invited you. And talk to somebody that you know in this church you don't know anybody here, talk to the person sitting next to you. They probably know Jesus and they would like you to know him as well. There is no other salvation than that which Jesus has accomplished. There is no other Lord who has a claim on our lives. It is his name that we are baptized into it is to him alone that we've sworn our allegiance. We, Christians, members of Henson, we should be uniters, not dividers, because Christ is not divided. That's not all. All is the second reason that we should pursue this. We should be uniters, not dividers, because gospel ministry is about Christ, not the minister. The work of the church, the ministry of the church is about Christ. It's not about the minister. Look at verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. All right, so he's just reminded them they weren't baptized into his name, they were baptized into Christ's name. So now it's almost a little bit like rubbing salt in the wound. He says, actually, I'm really thankful that I didn't baptize any of you, not one of you lot. I didn't baptize. Okay, yeah, I baptized Gaius and I baptized Crispus. Crispus had been the leader of the synagogue in Corinth and was one of Paul's very first converts when he got to Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 18, verse 8. Gaius was a wealthy convert who would go on to host Paul and others in ministry in Ephesus. You can, uh, he gets mentioned again at the end of the book of Romans. So he says, yeah, I, those, those are the only two I baptized. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, why does he remember at that moment and add that in? I kind of think it's because Stephanus is standing right there, you know, because he's the one who, who came and he's dictating this letter orally. He says, Paul, uh, you baptized me too and my wife and several of the servants in the house. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah them too. But beyond that, he can't remember. And that's the point. Baptism the personal allegiance or affection that might have accrued to Paul as a result of being the baptizer, it's not what his ministry or any faithful Christian ministry is about. Yes, we baptize. 
Paul baptized in obedience to Jesus' command. He's not actually denigrating baptism. He's not saying we shouldn't baptize. What he's saying is that's not what my ministry was about. It wasn't about like building a following, right? His ministry was about Jesus. He'd been sent by Jesus to preach the gospel about Jesus and to build a following for Jesus, not a following for himself. And that's what he'd done. And I think he's talking about himself because he doesn't want to like drag these other guys into it. But by implication, he's saying, that's what Apollos did. And, that, and that's what Peter did. He's essentially saying to them, guys, the problem wasn't with the way we conducted our ministry. The problem's with you. I preached the gospel, he says, not with the kind of eloquence that would have produced fanboys for Paul. No, I preached in such a way, made it clear the power of salvation was in the cross of Christ alone, not in human persuasion, not in human charisma or personality. Friends, faithful gospel ministers preach the gospel for the fame of Jesus Christ, not for the fame of the preacher. So I just want to warn you, like beware of any ministry that draws undue attention to the preacher. Beware any ministry that encourages a kind of personal loyalty to the preacher. Beware any ministry that overly hypes up the cult of personality that can be built around a preacher. Gospel preaching holds high the cross of Christ, not the cleverness or personality of men. And this, of course, is the problem with the kind of celebrity preacher culture that we've lived through these last particularly two decades. Here at Henson, we are committed to making the ministry about Jesus, not about the ministers. This is why we have a lot of people preach here and not just me. I'm the lead pastor, but if you've been coming along this summer, you haven't been hearing from me. This is only my second sermon in the last four months, right? It's, it's, it's the case. I mean, I try. It'll be hard this year because of my sabbatical. I try to pe- preach the majority of sermons every year but just a slim and bare majority. It's not that I don't like preaching. I love preaching. It's, it's because it's not about me. I, I want this congregation and the elders with me, we want this congregation to be trained to rejoice in hearing the word preached, not the man preaching. So I deeply appreciate uh, the fact that many of you have come up to me and said, oh, it's so good to have you back in the pulpit, and we're so glad to have you back, and I take that for what it is. But understand that that can be like a siren song in my ear that I think I need to resist. It's, it's, it's why we don't always have the same pastor or elder do baptisms. It's not about the man who baptizes. 
It's about the Savior into whose name you are baptized. Over the years, I've baptized a lot of people. But here's the thing. I don't really remember. I've often had people come up to me, maybe on the anniversary of their baptism, only to be disappointed that I don't remember. It was a very significant day for them, right? But all of the significance is in them and the relationship to this church and the relationship to Jesus. It's not about me. It's why it's so important that there's a plurality of elders here. You know, there's only one king of the church, and his name isn't Michael. His name is Jesus. I think what a plurality of elders does for us is it helps to underscore that there is no one human being in charge here. But together, the elders serve in a ministerial capacity. We are serving on behalf of someone else. You know, it'd be very easy to build a cult of personality, even with a personality like mine, which can be prickly, but it can be done. As a leader, it's not that difficult to play up your charisma or your leadership style. It's not that hard to make it about you. But here's the thing. There is nothing about a church built around the charisma or the charm, the personality or the abilities of its leader that commends the supernatural power of the gospel. Man, the, the, world, the world really understands cults of personality. The world really understands charismatic leadership. They get it. They understand it works. It doesn't commend the gospel. There's nothing supernatural required. Our aim is a ministry that exalts Christ and leads us to unity in him, not one that produces partisan loyalty to a man. We should be uniters, not dividers, because Christ is not divided, and because our ministry as a church is about him, not the minister. Remember where I started. We are inveterately tribal. Almost as soon as we find out that those people look different from us or that person voted differently from me or those people like an internet preacher that my favorite internet preacher disagrees with, before we even know it, we're dividing up in our minds and soon our affections. And before long, it's overflowing in our words. So what are we to do? Well, the rest of the book of Corinthians is going to address that. But right away, right here in these verses, Paul has not only given us the reason to pursue unity, and, and he's told us how, be, be trainers, physical therapists with each other, not butchers, but he's done one more thing with which we close. He subtly reminded them and us of the tribe that we actually belong to, the tribe that transcends all the other tribes that we're tempted to fight for. Twice in these verses, in verse 10 and verse 11, he calls them brothers and sisters. Even verse 11, my brothers 
and sisters. The first and most important tribe that any of us ever belong to is our own family, biological family. I have a brother and sister, and I can tell you from experience, brothers and sisters fight, they disagree. But unless something goes terribly wrong, like abuse or neglect, blood really is thicker than water, and you better not mess with my sister, even if I did just have a fight with her. Because of the gospel, we belong to a new family, God's family. And that makes us spiritually brothers and sisters in Christ. United we stand when we remember that we are not factions. We are family in Christ. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and think about that, that one place where you're tempted to define yourself more by faction than the family of God. And just confess that to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve to be members of your family. There's nothing about us that should commend us to you. And yet in your grace, in your love, in your mercy, you have overcome all the ways in which we were divided from you. And at the cost of your son, you have united us to yourself, brought us into your family. Oh, Lord God, give us the grace to remember who we are, to remember who Christ is. Give us the grace to live out our unity in Christ in a way that transcends all those other things that would seek to divide us. And in doing so, allow us to show forth the power of the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.